Hey, all my IFG friends, this is Steve. I want to say, you know, if you like movies like I do, we've started a new podcast called Happy Hour Flicks. Uh, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. It's all about nostalgic movies that we love, and we bring on special guests each episode, and we also have specialty cocktails made for each one, too. So it really is an hour of a good time talking about movies that we love, like Gremlins, uh, Seven, uh, Free Willy. Uh, we talk about The Last Starfighter also. So, I mean, we kind of run the gamut across all the decades and really have a great time. So I wanted to invite you to come over and join us at Happy Hour Flicks, anywhere podcasts are found. This is the, the independent, independent, independent filmmaker's guide from Framework Productions. Framework, Framework Productions. First of all, thank you very much for joining me on the episode today, Rob. Um, it's great to have you. My pleasure. Um, I think that, you know, I want to eventually we're going to talk a little bit about coloring documentary because that's a whole animal in and of itself and specifically some of your work in there. But how did you get started? Like, how did your career come to be where it is? I had a very circuitous route. I mean, I was I was interested in film from a very young age. Um, and I, uh, you know, I played with Super 8 and like did stuff like that when I was a kid. Um and then I went off to college and um, I started doing film uh, for a little while. And this was, I'm, I'm a little bit older. So it was back when film was film and uh, there was video, but it just looked horrible. Um, and I've always been, you know, about the picture. So I didn't want to go anywhere near video. Um, so I was, uh, um, I started going to film school and I was, at some point I got a, a Claire MPR 60 millimeter camera and was, was trying to get started as a DP, but the camera was so heavy and I'm kind of a small guy and, you know, any little thing broke and you had to send it to LA and pay a lot of money to get it fixed. It was just, it was oppressive. So at some <laughs> point, um, um, I started doing still photography and it was incredibly liberating. And, uh, I went back to school and got my master's, uh, in fine arts in inter interdisciplinary fine art, um, focusing on color photography. And I was doing my own, um, my own C prints in the lab. Um, so that was, that was kind of my first experience really working with color um, closely. And then I also uh, worked for a while doing uh, design for print and uh, doing a lot of scanning of color slides and color correcting those for print. So that's so, interesting. So what, what is that? Like, I'm not sure I understand what that job is. Well, um, well, I was doing design work, but I was also working at a service bureau that had a drum scanner. So people would bring in <clears throat> color transparencies, you know, anything from 35 up to like four by five uh, um, color slides. And you put them on this drum scanner, you scan them, and then you bring them up on the screen and you and you color correct them. And that's partially... You know, you've got a calibrated screen, but it's also partially you're looking at numbers and you learn like where, where things should sit in the numbers too. So mm. I did that for, for a while and eventually video kind of caught up with film. Um, I mean, didn't completely catch up with film, but um, the DVX 100 was the first camera that had an image that could actually be beautiful sometimes. Right, um, that's back in the day of the like the lettuce extreme, right? When the uh, the and you put it on the the HDV, and then you'd use photo lenses or lenses on an actual camera. Oh yeah, right? yeah, 
Yep, the 35 millimeter adapter. There were a couple of different ones. Um, yeah, I remember those. Those are big, bulky devices that you attached, and it was really, it was very funny to see everybody shooting with like an HDV camera for a year. I can't remember. It was the HVX, I think, something uh, that, that everybody used. Right. There, I mean, there were a number of different ones. I got a DVX100 and um, ended up making a, what I thought was going to be a short experimental documentary. And then it kind of grew and I got ITVS funding and made this feature doc called The Key of G, which was on PBS in 2008. Um, and uh, so that sort, of, that sort of launched my career in a certain way. And so I was, um, after that, I was doing shooting for hire and doing um, editing for hire. <clears throat> but the, the experience of, I hired um, this awesome veteran color grader, Gary Coates, to color grade The Key of G. And, um, he he's just a very generous soul and um really like as he was doing it was very open with how he was doing it and i learned a lot um from that experience and that sort of got me interested and after that on my own projects i would i would do at least a first pass of the color and then bring it to him and he would you know work with him with his calibrated screen and and so that's sort of how i got started and he was a little bit of a mentor Oh, that's amazing. so. With the narratives, and you've ended up directing more and doing more narratives along the way. Um, do you also do your own color grading whenever you direct something? Uh, I have, yeah. the The key of G that my first doc was color graded by Gary, but since then, uh, everything that I've I've done, I've done the color grading on. Wow, Actually, that's I'm, really that's really brave because I don't know. I always I, I hate editing my stuff alone. I always do like a look like for something, but I really. I don't think I would probably be the best person to color it in the end just because I get too close to it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's good and it's bad. It's like, if, if you are trying to uh, be efficient with your time, it is not the way to do it. Um, <laughs> you end up spending way too much, way too much time. Um, but you're able to get exactly what you want. And also it's just, a, it has been a good way to hone my craft um, doing that. So anyway, so I was, I was, uh, at some point I sort of stopped shooting for hire because the, the camera that I had was, you know, got too old and I didn't, didn't upgrade the camera. So I was editing for hire. And at some point I realized that like, I like finishing editing. Um, but like the early part of editing made me insane. Like it's just, <laughs> it's too open-ended for me and it's just, it's, it's wrong for my, attention to detail. It's hard for me to do a really rough cut. Um, I just want to polish. Um, it's kind of in my, in my DNA. So, um, so I, so I started to gravitate more towards finishing editing and, um, got more interested in color grading and finally, um, got a resolve system set up and almost immediately, like the first day I was, I was in a sort of shared office space with other people. Like I had my own room, but I had all these other filmmakers around me. And the day that I got my resolve system up and running, somebody popped their head in and was like, Hey, can you look at a couple of shots for me? I need to figure out if these are going to like fly or not. So I was just kind of, um, I was lucky that I had a big network of um, mostly documentary filmmakers um, around me who already knew me. Um, and I was able to really hit the ground running, starting to color grade. So the film that I noticed um, of yours that you colored was Stray with the Tribeca Film Festival. I saw the teaser for it, still haven't seen the entire film, but 
what really stood out was also it looks like a, a really really intriguing great idea for a documentary but it seems like so hard to approach something like that as a colorist because it is so all over the map like it feels like there there's footage at night that you know you're just following basically dogs stray dogs around uh, Istanbul Istanbul, dang it. Uh, I'm just <laughs> following around. It's Istanbul. But it's like, really, I mean, how did you how did you get involved with the project? And then how did you approach um, coloring it? So the way I got involved with the project, Elizabeth Lowe, who made Stray, um, I had worked with before. Um, she went to Stanford. And uh, many years ago, um, I became friends with Jamie Meltzer, who's a professor at Stanford. And um, through that, a film professor. <laughs> and through that, I met a lot of Stanford people and the Stanford people really stick together. So once you get a good reputation among Stanford doc filmmakers, suddenly you're working on a lot of Stanford graduates films. And I now actually am one of the people who color grades the um, the MFA films, the graduating films for the um, doc program there. <clears throat> but anyway, so Elizabeth Lowe had a film, which I don't think it was her thesis film. I think it was maybe her first year film called um, Hotel 22. Um, but it became an op doc on uh, the New York Times website and won a whole bunch of festivals. And um, and it's a, it's a great little film and it was really fun to color grade. And that was the first thing I worked on with her. And she's just got this wonderful eye um, and everything she shoots is just, I don't know, it's, I really love working with her footage. So there was that, and then there were a few, um, a couple other short things, and then Stray was her first feature. And uh, she was actually in, I think she was in Hong Kong at the time that she contacted me about Stray. Um, she's all over the place, um, but has lived in Hong Kong, lives in LA. I think she's in LA now. Um, so um, <clears throat> we talked about it, and um, and she sent me a hard drive, and we started we started on it remotely. And then how did you approach like, how do you approach like setting a look for a film like that? I mean, because from, from the teaser, there's lots and lots and lots of various stuff that I'm, there, I'm sure was just, I mean, I remember just even from the website too, there's a shot where they're in an alleyway, you know, very dark looking out into the rain, you know, with brighter lights and stuff. How do you, I mean, how do you approach a film like that to make it feel cohesive? Hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's the same as any documentary in in a sense it was easier than a lot of documentaries because it was almost all shot on an amira um i think it so you actually had more color space to work. had a lot of color space and also it was mostly shot on one camera um i work on uh i work on a huge range of things but a lot of the, i work on a lot of indie docs um because that's sort of the community that i come out of um and so some indie docs will have been shot on like eight different cameras because they were in production for, you know, seven years and kept switching cameras. And then they got some archival footage that's off of a cell phone from, you know, that from 2012 and, you know, just like right. the, the craziest stuff. And or, so, or a beta <laughs> tape that who knows how many times it's been transferred and digitized. Exactly. So, um, so it's, I think it's one of my strengths is is being able to take um, to to look at fairly degraded footage and figure out what what can I do with that you know how can how can we make that fit in what um, how can we make that like a little more beautiful and how can we make it 
match a little better. But but, that, but something do you think that's just go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, but something like Stray, it's it's all shot by her. Like every frame is shot by her, mostly with the same camera. So and also with um the Amira or I think the other camera was C three hundred. Um mm. and they both had, you know, the Amira in particular is just a dream to grade and the um and so you've got all this latitude. And so it's really a question of just what do you want it to look like? I mean, there's, you do run into limitations of like, okay, she was, this shot was shot in really low light and we barely, you know, we have to really dig stuff out of the shadows and then fight back the grain, uh, the, um, the noise. Um, but in general, um, we're pretty much able to go in whatever direction we want it to go. So talk about the degraded footage a lot. You said that's one of your one of your strengths. Is that just mostly intuition based or is that just from doing it a whole lot? And are there any cases of a time where you felt like you were really able to improve the look of a shot? Well, um, I mean, sometimes it's a matter of just thinking about what what different way it could be degraded that's more beautiful. Like I I mean, it's maybe because I'm I come originally from the film world, like I would much rather look at big old grain than I would at any sort of digital artifact. So if if the story supports it, um, which is to say if it's if it's not wrong for it to look less like video and more like film, um, sometimes I will kind of knock out detail and denoise to get rid of anything blocky um, in terms of um, in terms of interfat, uh, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, that, that absolutely makes sense. I mean, in visual effects, I know that's one of the things that in just general, what you're doing many times is removing lines, even if they are, you know, like naturally occurring straight lines, it's things that look staged artificial, you know, so that, that totally makes sense. You're just kind of blurring and, you know, denoising, I think that's what they call it, but it's, you know, kind of where you can degrade the footage make it softer, bloomier, and yeah. stuff like that. So you're knocking out knocking out anything blocky and then um and then stuff looks too smooth so you add some grain back until you get a and grain often I mean sometimes you have to throw big grain at something and sometimes that's beautiful. Um and sometimes it doesn't make sense. Um so um sometimes you have to denoise and then add back fairly fine grain almost to the point where you don't notice it as grain but it just feels like there's detail. Um, so it's just finding that, that edge. Um, yeah. So if you were approaching, like, if you're an indie, you said you encounter a lot with indie films that, uh, you know, they, cause they do film for who knows how long it take, could take to shoot a doc. It could take, you know, many, many years. Would you, I mean, and cameras keep getting upgraded as they go. Do you think people should maybe stay on the same camera for the same project? Would that be like what you think that may be a take to think at? Like, so for instance, if you started on a DSLR and you moved up to a, you know, uh, you had the ability to move up to a, you know, very cam LT or something, would you, would you not prefer they move up or do you think it's just kind of case by case? I think, I think they should move up. I mean, um, I mean, if, like I can make I can make stuff shot on a nice camera look like DSLR <laughs> if I need to, you know, um, and mm-hmm. I can pull the DSLR like out of that world into a more into a softer look if I to a certain extent. Like you know, at some point you run into like I you know not having enough color information or something like that. But um, 
frequently I, you know, you can, you can, you can push it some. Um, I mean, the, yeah. Uh, so no, I think that that absolutely makes sense. One question I've always asked uh, colorists and I really love the answers from everybody is if you had the choice between resolution and color science, um, which would you pick? So meaning, would you rather have 8k shot on a kind of, you know, a lower end camera or, HD shot on an Amira uh, red. Oh, definitely color. I mean, the, I mean, the resolution is nice sometimes, but uh, I mean, it's only when, I mean, the, the only, I mean, it's, it's much more frequent that I am trying to do something to a shot and it starts to fall apart because of not enough color information um, than it is that there's just not enough resolution in a shot. There's, I feel like sometimes, I mean, obviously there's SD. Sometimes people have some source that's SD because it's, you know, historical or whatever. And you can usually up res it and kind of make it look okay. You might, so that's another situation where you might add Depends some really- on how some, SD it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, or sometimes there's HD that is a codec that sucks and it it is kind of sharp and theoretically has the resolution, but doesn't feel like it has- enough information in it um so but i mean i don't know i mean i i i've i haven't worked on anything that finished in higher than 4k um and uh i mean the 4k is nice especially if people are going to punch in on things um you know like people rarely make a 4k dcp it's almost always a 2k dcp um because there's very few places that will show a 4k dcp um so i mean there's you know 4k delivery um for netflix or whatever sometimes um but most of this a lot of the stuff that i work on is heading for dcp or heading for the web so um mm. yeah so i got a question for you about like coloring docs in general what's your what's your process like do you start by trying to make everything just match and then you start kind of grading and giving everything a look or are you kind of doing them both simultaneously well there's a, i mean there's a question of what i should do and what i do actually do you know like some um stray is a good example of something where i got excited and i went down a road of a look um, with her remote where when she saw it, she was like, mm, no, that wasn't what I was thinking. Um, and I had to, I had to uh, walk it back. And I was like, how many years? And I still have not learned <laughs> that <laughs> you need to like make sure, make sure to build a base and then put the look on top of it. Um, but sometimes you get excited and you just like it. So you like neutralize and kind of, you know, correct, yeah. quote unquote, I, first. Yeah. Like make everything kind of unified. Yeah, I mean... I, I mean, in, in general, I, I like to work with a filmmaker right off the bat, uh, in, you know, I, I get, I get the project prepped and then I have the filmmaker in, um, like pre pandemic, they were in my office, um, usually. So with stray, it was pre pandemic, um, but I wasn't set up really for remote grading yet. Um, so when I did have to work with someone remotely, it was a matter of, um, on the phone and then posting things to Frame.io and getting feedback that way. Um, now I'm set up with a, a Streambox setup, so I can um, I can stream high quality color um, color correct video to someone's screen with a two second delay in real time. So that's that's why I work with people remotely now. 
Um, so anyway, so I, ideally at the, yeah, but- at the beginning, I sit down um, with the filmmaker either remotely or here and uh, um, I bring up in Resolve, you can uh, do the light box view of, of your shots. So you basically get this big grid with all your shots and I'll say like, okay, is there a place that you want to start? You know, is there a scene that's like really key to you or is there, you know, and we find a shot go to it and we start color grading it. And so I get the feeling of like, okay, how much saturation do they like? How much contrast do they like? Is there like some really strong look they're looking for? Is there, you know, what, what do they want? So once I've graded a shot with somebody in the room, then either, you know, they'll go off and do something else or they'll just be like on their laptop doing other whatever while I start. And then I, then I start matching everything, but I match everything sort of, in that I, I I know the world that I'm matching things in as opposed right. to matching old film and then coming back and saying like, okay, how do you want it to look? Totally. Yeah. Is it often that the documentary will vary, you know, like a narrative you can have, I mean, you have unified themes, but then you can have like a super dark moody nighttime scene followed by, you know, daytime car chase. Is it often that you vary the look so massively in a documentary? Mm, sometimes I mean definitely less than narrative I would say um I would say in general documentaries the the look per se is is less strong you know people want people usually want it fairly natural and um and the thing that I've learned is when people say they want a look on their documentary that um, almost inevitably will get dialed back in the end. Like they'll, they'll say, oh yeah, I really want it to look like this. And then you, you give them that look and they're like, can we, can we bring back the situation more? And maybe like, (laughs) you know, especially when they're, they're like, oh yeah, I want something really edgy. And it makes sense because I mean you probably you don't want the visual to be overcoming the story. And sometimes documentary is all about delicate storytelling. Yeah. I mean, I feel like with documentary, a, a large part of it is just getting getting distractions out of the way. And a lot of times the distraction is stuff that doesn't match. And, and, right. and footage that's just like, you know, this is the important thing that happened and there's an iris shift in the middle of it and it's all kind of underexposed. And, you know, it's, it's a lot more of a rescue operation. Um, right. So when there is like an iris shift in the middle of it, I mean, do you, do you always take the same approach? Do you ever, I mean, you trying to like keyframe across it to make it more subtle so you just don't notice it? Or are you trying to make one side match the other? There's um, in a, I don't remember which version of Resolve it got added, but there's a, an OFX called Color Stabilizer <clears throat> that when it works is like magic and is, is just the best thing. Because when it works, suddenly it's just, it's gone your Irish shift is gone (laughs) and it's hard. I haven't figured out like what the elements are that sometimes it works and sometimes it just completely doesn't work. So if it works, you know, I try that first. If it works, I'm like, yay. If it doesn't, then it's like, okay, find where the shift starts and where the shift ends and, um, and then keyframe it. And it's pretty hard to get it perfect. There's always like a little bit of a bobble there, but um, I mean, the important thing yeah. is like, if, especially if it's right in the middle of a shot, you don't want half your shot being too bright or half your shot being too dark. You want to try to even it out. 
Yeah, it reminds me of like, you know, if you ever get like a bump zoom or something, you know, somebody actually got a little too aggressive or stopped zooming or something on a zoom shot and you always try and match it in post, but you can never quite get it totally perfect. You can always get it just enough that you don't notice it, but just kind of always futzing with it to try and get it to the right spot. Um, so let's talk about timeline of a documentary. How long do you usually spend? Like whenever a fe feature documentary comes into your life, how do you, um, how, how, off, how long does it usually stay there? It really depends. Um, some move in and they don't want to leave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, I mean, there's, there's uh, one that I did that was, um, they edited on Avid. Um, uh, in San Francisco, it's, premiere is really dominant i mean it used to be a final cut seven town and now mm -hmm. it's it's premiere i mean there are people working in avid um but um it's almost everything i get is premiere and um but there's this this one doc is a fairly it was a big budget doc um done in avid and the the conform was kind of a nightmare um they had so much footage and there were so many snafus. So there was probably a week of conform and, and things wow. sort of trickling in and, and like getting it done. And then there was the grading and then, yeah. And it doesn't feel like you can even start grading at that point. You got to kind of have most 90% of it together, I'd assume. Yeah. You want most of it together, but anyway, a, a more normal, um, more normal situation. Uh, I mean, for a, for your average doc, and it's hard to say what your average doc is, but, um, but uh, I mean, usually, I mean, sometimes conform is like two hours, you know, or an hour. Um, right. Some sometimes sometimes it's a day. Um, it depends on a lot of things, and sometimes if somebody has a lot of, um, like, uh, a lot of like weird cell phone footage or or things like that, then, you know, I spend a chunk of a day, like deciding how I'm going to process that. I go back to the original and then, you know, time, there's doesn't really have time code. So I have to like match that back up and get it in. So it's more like online editing than it is color. Anyway. So right. And that's, yeah, it's about to say, I was like, I, that's what I used to do for cable shows. Like, yeah. So much as like, just end up going back and pulling stuff from tape and trying to find source material and reconnect it. And then it won't reconnect. Yep. And then you have to figure out what the hell you're going to do then. <laughs> yep. Um, so anyway, uh, I'm kind of rambling the, uh, so that's, so yeah, so this conform, which can, can vary wildly, um, best case scenario when you have like a really tech savvy editor. And especially if you, if you just have something that's all shot with a camera that has good time code, um, and you know, somebody's prepped it in premiere. Well, sometimes just everything links up and you're ready to go, you know, and then, um, in terms of how long it actually takes to grade, I mean, it's really different. There's, I love a nice, uh, uh, a nice slow moving documentary that doesn't have as many shots. Um, although sometimes those really long takes end up taking a long time to grade because you have to do a lot of keyframing if they move through a lot of different areas. Some of that in Stray, if I remember right. Um, you mean like you're like keyframing in secondaries, like, you know, and uh, wind power windows and stuff? Um, sometimes, or I'm, I'm keyframing, you know, if, if the camera is moving through different, uh, through different spaces, uh, 
sometimes rather than keyframing on the color page, I will just put slices on the edit page with, um, with transitions, with cross dissolves. Mm -hmm. And so then I can do the separate uh, sections. Just a separate grade on two different shots and just work on the blend. Yeah. Most extreme example in one direction was probably this um, film called, I can't remember if it ended up being called New York Hair or New York Cuts by, um, by Luke Lawrenson, the guy who made Midnight Family, which is a miracle of a film. If you ever get a chance to see it, like the shooting on that film is just incredible. It's a great film. Um, it was at Sundance this last year. Uh, anyway, um, but anyway, uh, Luke made this film um, that's all long takes of um, different uh, uh, barbershops in New York. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, you know, everything from like this, mm. this Russian barbershop to a Puerto Rican barbershop to I think it was the Senegalese woman ran a place. Uh, um, and so they're really long takes. And I think it's a feature film that has maybe 23 shots in it or something. Wow. Wow, really? Wow, I've got to check this film out. So that's um, so that's one end of the thing. And then there's others where, you know, some people cut really fast. And so you might have like 1,400 shots in a documentary. Um, I mean, I'm sure reality TV is way worse. But thankfully, I've never had to color grade <laughs> any reality TV. Um, so, yeah, so the number, the, number of, um, the number of shots does make a big difference. And the, you know, the repetition of the shots, like some, you know, if something is, if you can set a look and like kind of apply it and just tweak it. Yeah. I mean, if, if some documentaries are interview heavy and if there's like six people who get interviewed a lot, then once you get those graded, that's a chunk of your film. Um, it's more fun to work on the things like Stray that are all verite, but then each, you know, each shot's going to be a little different. I mean, you can, you can copy grades over and tweak them, but, um, but yeah, it's a lot more individual shot to shot, uh, attention there. So in those shots like Stray, how much are you depending upon scopes and how much are you using intuition? I mean, I always use scopes sort of as I'm starting. It's, it's funny. It's, I'm trying, I'm trying to think it's like, I'm looking at scopes and the image sort of like at the same time. At the same time. I mean, I think probably when I'm initially dialing in contrast and basic color balance, I'm definitely looking at scopes, um, but my eyes are flicking back and forth between the scopes and the, and the image. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to occasionally like turn off the scopes and do some grading and then see where you are with the scopes. Um, I should do that more often. Um, do you think it just lets you kind of go with the emotion of what you're feeling in the, in the shot whenever you do that? That's, that's interesting. I would just be curious how much, how much I can hit the same points without the scopes. Never occurred to me to try that actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, a little, you got to try it then send us the okay. shot. Do one with the scopes and then do another shot that's similar without it. Um, but scopes are especially good, you know, towards the end of the day when your eyes are getting tired and you're just like, what, where, where's this shot, you know, what's going on? And you, like the scopes will tell you, you know, whereas if you didn't have the scopes, you can, because your eyes adjust to where things are, you can be like grading, you know, a bunch of shots in a row and they're all kind of green and you're like, it feels slightly like something's wrong, but 
but you're not really sure. And then, you know, if you look at your scope, you, if you look at your scopes, you're like, oh, place. right, right. Okay, I need to go outside <laughs> for for five <laughs> minutes and remember what the world looks like and then come back, you know, at the end of a really long grading day. <laughs> it used to be, I, you know, when I was, you know, like five years ago or something, after six hours of grading, I'd just be like, okay, I'm done for the day. Like, I can't do anymore, you know? And now I can, now I can mm -hmm. do longer days, but it's it's hard to build up that it's it's a it's a workout for this part of your brain you know for sure yeah so let's talk a little bit more about your covid setup you guys are designing at lateral like designing an individual room right coming up for your clients why why is that and how do you think that's going to help um well i've actually already started using it um so um i'm the master tenant um and i have a quite a bit of space here with various filmmakers in here and there was um uh structure films uh the filmmakers who were making um a film about Stuart brand that was at no it was supposed to premiere at south by mm, um mm -hmm. this this last year but anyway they were they were in the room right next to mine and then when they were done with their film they they moved out um so i had this empty room um right next to my room and i was thinking about the fact that you know it's it's good to have the client looking at a monitor that you know i've calibrated um but during the pandemic it's not good to sit in the same room with somebody else all day you know you don't really want to wear a mask all day um and so i basically set up that room um i moved my 55 inch oled into that room um and just just wired through the wall to that and put a couch in there figured out actually the hardest part was finding a good intercom setup between the two rooms that mm -hmm. sound, yeah that was what i was gonna say how do you do how do you do talk back um what i ended up doing was getting um these little speaker phones uh the brand like i was emeet luna it's just like a it's like a little speaker phone that you could hook up to your phone or whatever but it's usb and i hook uh one up in each room and then i use this piece of software called loopback that lets you route audio so I just route the speaker from one to the, or the mic from one to the speaker of the other and vice versa. And it works pretty well. And it's just always on. You don't have to press to talk. Hmm. So that's cool. So that, well, so now they, they get to sit over there and they could be criticizing your shot and you're going to hear them. Oh yeah. I mean, it's just the same as having them in the room, except that it's the next room over. And so, yeah. So, um, so that's been great. Um, I've already had, um, I've had two individual clients and then this one client who came in and wanted to bring a couple people with him. Um, and so there were three of them in that room. Um, and it works. Yeah, it works well. It's funny though. The, there's a thing I would say about grading is like, I don't really look at my client's faces very much because even when they were in the same room as me, like the way that I have my setup is I'm sitting at a desk um, and I've got, um, actually, if you look on my website, there's a picture of my setup, but, um, you know, there's my Flanders monitor right in front of me and my panel and my two other UI monitors. And then in front of my whole desk, there's a couch facing the other way and the client's sitting on that, looking at the OLED on the far wall. Um, so basically I look at their footage all day, but I only look at their face, like if we have lunch together or something, you know, and when they <laughs> arrive, when they leave and now when they arrive and when they leave, they have a mask on. So it's it's that thing where I like I know I'm gonna run into clients out in the world and be like be like And they're not gonna yeah, not be able to recognize yeah. them. 
you're, you're, sounds like you're color grading for Zorro, really, the more we talk yes. about it. Like coming in, although maybe if they brought the sword, it might be a whole different kind of day. Yes. <laughs> so um, what is what are you working on next? What's next for you? You got any other big projects on the horizon you're, you're looking forward to? Um, what's next? Um, in terms of my own projects, I do not have one right now. Um, it's been a while. Um, I've just been I've been mostly concentrating on the color grading. Um, uh, the next thing I've booked is a documentary about um, this uh, underground comic artist, Spain Rodriguez, um, hmm. which looks like it's going to be interesting. Um, I haven't seen a whole cut of it yet. I've just seen like bits and pieces of it. Um, yeah, and I'm sure some other stuff will will show up in the meantime. So, <laughs> yeah, the, they come in waves. It feels like colorists. It is like just a wheel. Like one comes in, one goes out. One comes in, one goes out. Yeah, it's when when the shelter in place thing happened. People asked me like, "So is it affecting your business?" And I'm like, "It's impossible to tell." I had, I mean, I had this cr- right before shelter in place. I had this crazy spring where it was just I color graded like. In in three months, I color graded like three features and a bunch of short things. It was just like, it was a lot. Like I was just working, 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 working. And then right as everything was getting done, because a number of the things were for South by, which didn't didn't happen. Um, But they we had to we finished them all for South by, Um, and then shelter in place happened, and then it was quiet. But I was expecting it to be quiet after that. Thing. So I was kind of like, okay, what's going to happen, you know? But I also feel like there's, I'm optimistic because there's, there's no less of a, um, of a market for video content. If anything, there's more. Um, and the, I think if I were, if I were someone who most of my business was uh, commercial, I'd be more worried, but I feel like the indie doc scene is not going to be that affected. I mean, there's might be a little gap because people can't sh- shoot during a certain period of time, but, um, and, and then the other thing is that because of the way schedules are with finishing a film, like, you know, like the, this next doc that I'm going to be doing, you know, she started making, I think four years ago, you know, so it's like maybe in, two years, there's going to be a little lull from the things that didn't get shot during shelter in place. I don't know, but so far it's, it's been fine. Yeah. So if you like now having worked so much, you know, in so many various areas, but specifically doc footage is what I'm interested in. What would you, what advice would you give people that are making their documentaries or about to start making their documentary now to really get the most out of it or things maybe potentially to be aware of, to try and avoid? That could be a long list. Um, (laughs) Are there any typical things that kind of happen over and over to you that you're like, you know, this is something that every time I see it, I'm like, this is, I wish we could avoid this. I mean, there's things that have to do with the difficulty of the conform, um, which have to do with cameras that split things into like split long Mm. takes into multiple files. Now that's interesting because so for instance, like uh, I'm trying to think of cameras that, you know, I know red does that, but red's pretty good about how it wraps and comes back. Yeah. I don't, I don't don't really have a problem with red 
red footage. It's like very cam footage. Like um, that that splits it into stuff. I think Sony DSLR split it into you know, and Sony like uh, the FS seven hundred. All those actually split it into like .mts clips, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess the big things I would say is try not to try not to mess with your aperture in the middle of a shot. Like just unless it's really off, just deal with it. You know. Um, cause those, those are a pain to fix and they're very obvious. So I wonder about like going back to your other thing. Like, so if you do have one of those cameras that split things up into multiple file structures and you need that, do you ever, I mean, do you prefer them to be transcoded to like, you know, 422 HQ or to, to a comparable codec that is a single wrapped file? Does that help? Yeah. I mean, transcoding can be great. Um, and we'll definitely make, you know, if everything's ProRes, the conforms probably going to be easier. And that'll ultimately save them time and money, hopefully. Too. Yeah, but it really depends. It's really a case-by-case -case thing. And it's hard for me to keep track of which cameras uh, cause the problems because you know, I'm in the middle. I'm just like trying to solve the problem. At that, yeah, so, at that point, you're just trying to fix it. Yeah, you know? and what, what I do more and more is I, um, the way I ask people to prep things is to give me a, um, uh, a reference, of course, um, with all with their titles, color, everything. Um, and then also to strip off all the color and um, and titles and give me a ProRes 42HQ of the whole thing, and then also to give me the Premiere um, with the with the timeline prep the original for, source for XML. So I'll I'll mm -hmm. start out doing the XML round trip, and then if there's a bunch of shots that are like coming in and it's the wrong piece of the shot because the time code didn't match or whatever, um, we can choose to either fix it or we can just I can just take that single quick time lay it on the track above and just cut out pieces as I need it right that's smart yeah absolutely I mean it can definitely save you in a in a bind yeah it's a, it can save a lot of time and sometimes you do that and you're like hmm I feel like we're you know I think there was some super white uh data in this that we're losing so let's go back to the you know to the source Right, but then you can at least take it case by case. Yeah, it can save a lot of time. I used to, when I was starting out, try to solve every single conform issue, but it it's, can be a huge time suck. So Rob, if people want to find your work, where should they go? There's lateralfilms.com, uh, which has, has the films that I've worked on. And then if you go to the services tab, there's um, my reel for color grading. And then I mean, you, can look, you can look on IMDb. Uh, for the list. Oh, yeah. Do you have a social media account or anything you, you'd like to direct people to? I have social media accounts, but I don't really tend to them very well. So, <laughs> so yeah. lateralfilms.com is the place yes. to find you. Maybe this, maybe this will spur me to actually use my... I have a Facebook page. My Instagram is kind of more my personal Instagram than... I don't have a lateral films Instagram, but maybe I should. Maybe it's the time yeah. to start it, Rob. <laughs> well, it was great getting to talk to you. I really appreciate you it's taking nice talking the time. To you. Filmmaking is a collaborative experience, and so is this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at framework underscore productions for upcoming episode announcements and leave your questions in the comments for our future guests. Please take a second to subscribe so you know about future episodes and leave a review. It really does help us. IFG is a community, and we want to help you in your filmmaking process. 
IFG is created by Framework Productions. This episode was directed by James Allardyce, produced and edited by Matt Mundy and Audrey Ray McHale, and hosted by Stephen Pierce. The music is by Glassboy. Find his music on freemusicarchive.org. See and listen to all the episodes plus bonus content at independentfilmmakersguide.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, friends, we just wanted to take a quick moment to talk about two personal things. First, we wanted to thank you, our listening community and our wonderful guests, learning so much together along the way and continuing to learn, sharing our stories, making a lot of new friends and collaborating, which is exactly what this is all about, which also brings me to my second point. In great part to many of these new relationships, we wanted to let you know that we've taken a lot of this advice ourselves and made our own narrative feature film, Heard, H-E-R-D, Heard, which is premiering this October on Friday the 13th in select theaters as well as on VOD. Personally, I think it's the perfect kind of scary movie to watch during our favorite scary season. So we'd love for you to celebrate with us and watch Heard. You can pre-order it on Apple TV, and of course, do the communal thing, see it in theaters. Of course, for all of this, please see our show notes, but basically, we're going to keep it all updated at herd.film. That's H-E-R-D dot F-I-L-M, herd.film as well. Thank you again, and be sure to give us a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to build this community and collaborate. IFG, how movies get made.